Hey, look at that. Hi, everybody. It is, uh, let's see, the 22nd, the 22nd of September 2022. This is episode 132 of the Luke Thomas live chat. I am, of course, Luke Thomas. I appreciate you guys joining me. Maybe that's a little strong. Put that down a little bit. Uh, let's see. On the docket today, I saw some questions about Gordon Ryan, about Nate Diaz, some other stuff. We'll get to it. Uh, thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Hit subscribe if you'd be so kind. Appreciate you guys tuning in. If you're new here, we'll go for about an hour with the free questions everyone filled up over the last day or so. I put up a thread on the community tab at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. You guys fill it up. And then if you have a paid question, certainly they're under no obligation to do that. But if you do, we'll get to those uh, at the end, at the end, after about an hour or so. So thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. Welcome, welcome. Without, oops, excuse me, without further ado, let's get this party started. Shall we? Oops, wrong one. Haha. <laughs> Here we go. There we go. Oh, you know what? My chair is a little high. Let me put it down a little bit. There we go. Okay. Hope you're doing well. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's see if I have any news and notes. I don't think I have that many. Um, I don't think I have any. Had a weird day today. Had to go get fitted for some new glasses. Your boy is getting even more blind as time expires. And my, uh, I've had a car. I've had the, this car since 2015, and uh, Mazda CX-5 is just a dad car. Nothing special about it. Have never had an issue with it, and it nearly conked out on me out of nowhere today. So that was fun. Made it home, but still, we'll see how that goes. I know you don't care. I'm merely reciting to you things that are utterly irrelevant. So let me not waste any further time. Thanks for joining me. Let's go, shall we? All right. Let's pull up the window so you guys can see. I think we'll do it like this. Let's see, like that. There we go. Or you know what? Maybe we'll do it like this. No, that one doesn't work. Let's try it like this. We can do that. Uh, you know what? We'll go back to this. Okay. Doesn't matter either way. Here are the questions that you guys put in. There were some... I, oh, let me go back here real quickly. Yesterday, something was a little wonky. It was on YouTube's end. Certainly wasn't mine where people couldn't see the other questions. I even got some emails about it. That that wasn't me, but I checked it this morning and everything was working fine. So I do realize there may have been some particip participation issues as a consequence, but overall it did fill up. So I hope it works out. Uh, with that being said, let's get this going. All right. By the way, Gordon Ryan in pretty good shape, huh? People are like, oh, I think he's on steroids. I'm like, look at me. Look at me. Look at me very closely. Ready? I don't care. And in fact, I think it makes ADCC better, more exciting. And I think the results from a commercial standpoint, from an interest standpoint, and from an athlete participatory standpoint, all speak to that. don't care doesn't bother me even a little bit just want to make that clear i put this out on mk extra credit where would they, what about the drugs yeah what about the drugs what about them i I'm, i start from this premise right is the only role for these kinds of drugs is the only role for them in sports utter and total prohibition that the only role for them for some people the answer will be yes for me that answer seems something on the order of insane and especially in a sport like jujitsu where I look at the model of the sport there's all these different events 
right? Uh, and by the way, there are some events that do drug testing. There are some that don't. ADCC does not. But the athletes have a choice about what kind of events they want to participate in. It's the same with something like powerlifting or other strength sports. You can choose, not all of them, but you can choose to participate in what you want to. Tested sport, tested events, non-tested events, right? You have, you have that option. And by the way, that itself is no solution to the problem, but it at least gives some opportunity to folks who want to use to go use. I know what we all operate under the assumption that athletes really don't want to use. They don't want to use and that all they really want to do is um, compete drug-free. Some of them do. They should be allowed to do that under competitions that have those kinds of rule sets. Uh, but there should also be the option to do the exact opposite. And the idea that this somehow ruins sport or it makes for a less compelling product or which we just don't really know what to make of it. It's just, it's all fucking nonsense. It's not real. It's not true. You've been led to believe total garbage from the word go. The answer is not drugs in every sport, neither prohibition. The answer is athlete choice based on event participation. That's a much, a much, much better system. And for me, this was the most exciting grappling tournament you could argue in the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, and no one's going to nullify the results as a consequence. The fans can't say they had a bad time. There's no participatory from a, the competitor standpoint strike happening. There's not, there's, there's none of that. In fact, one of the guys who's 19, who, you know, who knows what he's, if, if, if he's using anything at all, I think it's Kate Ruotolo. He won uh, all of his matches um via submission right i think at 19 years old and you know he sort of is very proud about the fact that he doesn't use which is great like i don't think a 19 year old kid should really be using all that much anyway to be quite candid with you but neither here nor there you know oh what about the drugs <laughs> what fucking about them what about them i don't i don't buy into drug war hysteria i don't believe we need to keep the nancy reagan world of drug use um as something we we have to take seriously, I don't give two shits about it whatsoever. Especially in a sport where the or an event, I should say, where they don't even test. I I would argue it made ADCC better. It made the performances better. It made my entertainment level better. I think it made overall the grappling better. It made everything better. Um, if you know, if you would like to hold on to the worldview that Nancy Reagan proffered in the eighties, then you are allowed to do that. But to me, it's twenty twenty two. All right, with that out of the way, a little preamble there. I blew up the questions, so now you can read them a little bit more easily. Let's go to them here. First question, no question. Just wanted to say thanks for the content. Thank you, Amy. Live chats are my favorite. Well, besides the dissected type ones. So it's funny. Here's where the car had some issues. I went to the studio today to go bring back the TV, and right as I was going into the, the garage, because there's no street parking on DC hardly at all, they uh, my car was like, Ugh. it was on the, uh, and the check engine light came on. It was a fucking nightmare. So I actually wasn't able to pick it up. I'm going to go back Sunday and get it. But uh, but yeah, that was like almost almost ominous in a way. All right, back to the questions. Luke, I just rewatched the resume review UNBC did on Colby. I got to say, it makes me lean towards him in a fight against Chimaev. But I've been uh, wrong as at least as many times as BC. Well, in fairness to BC, I've been wrong a lot too. Do you think this could be the fight that turns Colby from the villain to the hero if he wins? Temporarily. Temporarily. Well, first of all, let's just back up a step here. The idea that Colby is a universal villain is not true. Very much not true. He is reviled by a lot of the fighters. I think he is reviled by a key portion of the fan base. Um, for the, if you can decide whether those are good or bad reasons. But the idea that he is 
I mean, is he hated and was he hated a lot, even more so, uh, you know, a year or two or even before that ago? Yes, certainly that is true. But, and I guess we'll, we haven't really seen him since the Jorge Masvidal incident, so I don't really know how to interpret all of that or what that might mean. But let's be very clear about something. There are a lot of people who like him. There are a lot of people who support him. There are a lot of people who think his act is quite funny or find his style of fighting or whatever admirable. The, 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 you know, when he came out against Kamar Usman in their rematch for like the press conference or whatever, he was getting a lot of cheers. I think that there's this idea that he's totally he fashions himself as someone who tries to needle everyone. And so in that sense, he's the villain. But this idea that like he's universally reviled within the sport, he's reviled in certain important set sectors and to in certain important groups. But there are a lot of people who cheer him. Now, if he goes and beats Chemaev, I think that would just boost the existing popularity you already see him developing. People have become, some people, again, some people within the sport and a not insignificant part of it have become charmed by his act or charmed by whatever he has to say. Um, you may like that fact. You may find that just, you know, uh, <laughs> how do I put this? Hard to fathom, but it is quite real. Um, I do think it would boost his fortunes, but like Colby's not going to stop doing the things that he's done to this point. He's going to just needle everyone he can to get a reaction from them for whatever purpose he is trying to get a reaction for, whether it's to get a fight and then get that fight as a way to leverage your way back to a title shot, whether it's to get some attention for whatever purpose. He, that, like, I, he would have to change that. So I certainly think that beating Shemaev can boost temporary fortunes and you know build on what has been, I think, slowly kind of happening where there's been a segment of the fan base that's really become fans of his. But by itself, it wouldn't. Um, it would require more than just that. It would require a change in the way he behaves uh, inside the sport itself. So for that, I'm a little skeptical. All right, Luke. Question about round three. Of course, they wait until I get tech. You know, just I mean, all right, let's just put this motherfucker on. There we go. Do not disturb. Okay, Luke. Question about round three of the Feely Algeo fight. Two judges scored it for Feely, right? Uh, I had a 1-1 basically heading into the third. And one judge scored it for uh, our Algeo. I keep saying Algeo. Algeo. I'm not sure how it's possible for the judges to have different scorecards from each other unless there's a misunderstanding of the scoring criteria. No, that's not true. We'll come back to that. Either they're supposed to be judging damage, which Algeo did more of, or they're scoring grappling sequences and submission attempts, which would have given Feely the round. What are your thoughts? Well, I would have to talk to the judge in question to get a better sense of why he scored round three for Algio. I think it's, I like Bill a lot. I thought he performed quite ably, but I scored that fight for uh, Feely. And I thought a third round scorecard for anyone but Feely to be more or less a high crime and misdemeanor worthy of, you know, a death sentence. Uh, it, 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 it is just utterly insane to give anything other than that round to uh, Andre Feely. He had, he at least set up, you know, not all that close, but at least um, you had to address it, which Algio did by rolling. But if he hadn't done anything, if he just let it go, there absolutely would have been a head and arm triangle. But more to the point, he had the back and that choke was tight. That was a nearly fight ending choke where once the hand there's a, one hand's on the bicep. Obviously, one hand is going to be behind the head, right? And you sort of have the knuckles facing their head, your, your palm facing you, right? Uh, once you get behind the head, that's usually game over. Okay, that's usually game over. 
Bill, because he's a beast, was somehow able to free it. So then what's the natural transition? You go from bicep grip to gable grip. And that was pretty close too, but that wasn't enough. Nevertheless, he had a body triangle in control the whole time. Now I know what the response would be, which is Algeo was punching behind him. But these are not mechanically efficient punches. By I mean, they, they had struck on the feet a little bit, but it was relatively equal. Maybe a slight lean towards Feely based on recollection. Um, but it was, you know, it was relatively equal. But to me, what won the round for Feely was obviously he had the back and he had some really close threatening submissions. The fact that Algeo was able to punch, Algeo was able to punch behind him. It's not that it doesn't count. It counts for something. But that, to me, counts as what they call more accumulative damage, not the kind of acute damage that they, they typically look for, which is like a big punch or kick that lands, leaves a visible mark, wobbles someone, drops them, that kind of a thing. A really big, impactful, powerful shot. Those weren't that kind of a punch. And doing this, it, you know, punching behind you can be tiresome. Again, it, you're not going to get a whole lot of power on those. They can have an effect. Um, they could potentially bloody a nose. Um, you know, they can do something, but those are not really threatening in any kind of way. What was threatening was the grappling control and then specifically the rear naked choke attempts. That to me is like, I, again, I, I would need to talk to the judge in question to have a clear sense about what, what exactly they saw and how they saw it. Because remember, they could have been positioned at a place on the other side of the cage where they didn't get necessarily a great look. They may have not been using their monitor. Not every judge in every state has a monitor. They do in Nevada. But there can be situations where your line of sight and the information you are taking in to process is not really incomplete, but actually disadvantageous to getting a, a, an accurate read. That is very, very possible, which is why some leniency towards judging for any number of reasons, that and then the immediacy of it, need to be taken into account. I certainly understand that. And so we, we should be somewhat understandable, somewhat forgiving, I think, for those reasons. But for me, this is, I keep talking about this, what it seems like to me, and I want to put those words very clearly, seems like, again, not having talked to the judge in question, is that there's just a massive overcorrection for gra I've been saying this week after week, and I'm gonna keep saying it. There is a massive overcorrection. If getting you getting a, a full on with the back control rear naked choke, or you have to fight the hands in the most desperate position, remember defense is its own reward. The only reward of defense is that you defended something. So the, the fact that Algio was able to pull the hand off is incredible, but doesn't count for shit other than the defense he uh, gets to enjoy as a consequence. And so, for me, this is very obviously, you know, who to score this for. Very obviously, it, it belongs to, to Andre Feely. Uh, and I understand some of the concerns that he had after the fight. I mean, he was a little bit heavy-handed with the language, I thought. But nevertheless, like, you can understand what he was talking about here. Dude, if you full back control for, I mean, how much time did he enjoy? Let's actually look this up here a little bit. Andre Feely. Let's get some stats on him, shall we? All right, so let's look this up. So how long did he actually have back control? So in that third round, he had three minutes and 49 seconds of back control with the takedown, with two submission attempts they credited him with, and the striking difference, yes, in total strikes, was significant here in this sense, 16 out of 27 versus 74 of 92. But in terms of significant strikes, just eight versus 10. How the fuck do you score that for anyone other than than Andre Feely. How the fuck do you do that? I honestly don't know. I don't know. That's that's a that's full on grappling control with fight ending sequences or you know uh the, the obviously didn't end the fight, but the kinds of weapons and offense attached to the control 
that put you in fight ending scenarios and then they score the other one because there was punches behind his head that seems relatively insane to me relatively insane the other part you brought up though that i want to go back to is you write quote i'm not sure how it's possible for the judges to have different scorecards from each other unless there's a misunderstanding of the scoring criteria no not at all they can have rounds can be close, which means it's really hard to adjudicate. Remember, they're based, they're looking based off what they see and what they hear based on their cage position. They're not seated next to each other. One is here, one is there, one is there. They're all over the place. And so as a consequence, they're, you know, depending on how things go, they're very much at the mercy of their cage position. I don't know what the judge saw in this case, but it is very common, very common for judges to have different interpretations uh, based on what happened in individual rounds and obviously over the course of a fight. We had a fight not long ago. I think it was not this week, but the one before, where uh, in every round, all the judges had no consensus. There was no round where the judges had consensus on any single round. Obviously, two picked for one, but then there was there was no round where all three had a 10 or all three had a 9. Didn't exist. So, like, how can they have a different scorecard? Very easily. They can very easily have a different scorecard. Please believe it. All right, let's go back to the uh, questions here. Uh, let's see. I sense a change in the BJJ meta is coming. Watching ADCC, it very much seems that takedowns are growing in importance. It appears BJJ has its own set of takedowns that work for its own rule set. Yeah, what does uh, Gordon call it? He calls it like not – I mean, there's another term called mat wrestling. Yeah, uh, oh, he, I think he calls it scrimmage wrestling, something like that. Foot sweeps, arm drags throw buys judo throws like uchimata from the wizard kick or the wizard the overhook and then head inside singles to avoid the front headlock counters from a sprawl seem to be the least likely to expose one to front headlocks and back takes in the way a poorly done double leg seems to but it seems to you excuse me doesn't seem to you that these types of takedowns will find a place in mma uh no what it seems to be happening to me is exactly as you describe which is that there is a growing understanding and a move towards sports-specific takedowns that work for exactly the reasons that they need to. The threats you might face at ADCC versus an MMA fight are wildly different. There's obviously going to be some overlap, um, but you know you don't see like you don't have the room a, a lot of times on some of these mats. Uh, not miss, not necessarily for ADCC, but in a lot of these tournaments, you don't have room if, if there's if someone is resisting, for example, to hit like a in MMA. You'll see guys hit a knee pick. Right, well, they block the knee on one side, and then they can drive the body either under the armpit or, or over the shoulder, depending on how they want to do it. And they can run a knee pick in a direction, and sometimes it will take you know almost a full distance of the octagon or a huge portion of it, or or they'll run a knee pick into the fence and then use something there. Like fence wrestling is obviously its own reality due to MMA. Nogi Jiu Jitsu is going to have different, obviously, realities based on what they what kind of games that people have to prepare for. And Gi Jiu Jitsu with the gripping is going to change a lot of it as well. Um, I just think though those are the things you highlighted are correct. I did see, a, uh, well, I didn't watch a whole lot of ADCC. I didn't think I was going to watch any, and then I was like, you know, I ended up watching a little bit. I watched all of what Gordon Ryan did, but I didn't see, I didn't see a ton of the other stuff. But in general, I think what you're pointing out has been happening for a while and is quite true. Um, let's see, the Uchimata is valuable, but not necessarily in the same kinds of scenarios. A lot of like, for example, who's good at the Uchimata? Shavkat Rachmanov. Shafkat Rachmanov will get pressed against the fence and then create a little bit of space for his hip um, and then use like a lull in the action to then go for it. You know, those are things that are just not really the same at all in a situation like ADCC. You just don't see stuff quite like that. So um, 
there's going to be some overlap, but I just feel like the wrestling in, in Nogi overall is getting better and it's getting very much selected for the, the particulars of the uses inside that sport specific needs. Someone saying, look, Dan Raphael uh, confirming a December date for Nooya in a way. That's the monster, if you guys don't know. One of the most exciting guys in all of boxing. Uh, for his undisputed unification bout, I would love to hear a resume review from me on BC. I don't know if he's got it. I mean, first of all, the boxing resume reviews are a lot harder to do because the fights are much longer. And also, I don't know if Inouye has quite the... I don't know if he's quite at the stage of his career where that's appropriate. All right, let's go back. Luke, is there anything to be said of... Hold on. Luke... Is there anything to be said of Hamzat taking the initiative straight from the opening of the fight where most of the time fighters may take the first five to ten seconds of a fight to get a good look at one another? It'll take a lot more than that and establish their footwork. I know it's a small window, but if a fighter gets accustomed to all of their fights beginning the same way, could that forge a bad habit of leaving that small window open? Basically, uh, it's just a it's a calculated call by Hamzat, but there's a balance in play. I talked about it, like I think, a week or two ago. One sort of issue he has to wrestle with, you know, metaphorically speaking, no pun intended, is that, remember, Habib comes out with intensity, but not nearly the same kind of, like, shot out of a cannon intensity. And so he's not the same kind of first-round fighter that Hamzad is. And again, there's a lot of differences to their game far beyond that. But that he has a, a he has a grappling style where he can maintain a high level of intensity over the course of a long bout of uh, 25 minutes or, you know, you can't wrestle the entire time. Nobody can, but you get the idea. He can maintain that scale of intensity much, much more closely from round one to round five. We just don't know if Hamzat can do that. So partly there's a trade-off there, which I've previously identified. The other one that he's picking up on that is advantageous for him is a lot of guys don't want to rush into a mistake. And so they will naturally have a more reserved uh, attitude towards the beginning of the fight as a consequence of not like just don't run into punches don't make a stupid mistake take your time feel it out make good decisions as a consequence that's a naturally defensive mindset and that allows someone if they want to do it with high intensity to take advantage of that you have your opponent already much more defensively minded than they ordinarily might be in rounds two and three yep Piotr Jan is a perfect example like he almost just punts on the first entire round he barely does anything meaningful in the first round but then he begins to build on it as time goes on there's a gap there and he is filling that gap sort of it's almost it's quite strategic let me let me lock my door because my daughter just got home so this is going to be a thing hang on one second okay there we go uh she might just try and come and walk you know while, while i'm in here i'm trying to avoid that so that gap where you you can take advantage of guys who are naturally defensive, and it works a lot of times because now they're automatically on the back foot. Now they're automatically in a space where they're having to react to everything he does. So they come out and they want to play a slow game of chess. He comes out and it's Washington Square Park speed chess, searching for Bobby Fischer, Lawrence Fishburne style, or, you know, where they're hitting the clock and moving constantly. So he's automatically able to set the tone that way. The question is, what happens when you run into resistance, like real resistance, where it doesn't work and it doesn't work? Now, um, in the I think, what was the guy he beat uh, who just won a contender series? Alice Karov? I, I forget his name. I can find it here in just a minute. But the, 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 the I think he's a Sambo world champion who uh, 
uh, Chimaev beat on the at Brave FC or Brave CF, however they call it. He couldn't get the takedown, so then he just went to the fist and he knocked him out. So there are some alternatives. Like Chimaev is a fucking handful, but but the reason why he like fighters don't do that is because they're much more cautious about making mistakes. Chimaev just seems to not care. Chimaev just seems to just throw caution to the wind and just say fuck it. And because he is careful a little bit, he goes. Remember, remember the remember the stupid controversy. Like, oh, what about the fake love touch? Get the fuck out of here with that. But he does fake high, and then he has an incredible shot that's lightning quick, and his ability to change levels is extraordinary. He has such a fast level changing shot, man. Where the 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 depth of the level change is unbelievable. And so you match that with the intensity. You match that with guys having a much more defensive mindset right at the outset of the fight where they don't want to just give the fight away based on a stupid mistake before they can make reads. He fills that gap strategically. Um, but, you know, it's the same thing that, you know, it's a, it's a, here's why that's interesting. Let's connect the dots here a little bit. Raul um, Rosas Jr., the 17-year-old who got signed, he does something similar. Now, he doesn't quite have the same game as Shemaev. That's not what I mean. But he comes out with, with a fiery intensity to set the tone. You're going to grapple on my terms, not yours. You're going to deal with my threats. You're going to deal with my pressure, not yours. Right? That's how, that's how he comes out. And again, there's a lot of benefits to that. There's a lot of benefits to that. But what you're going to find, I think what he's going to find, is that eventually someone's going to be able to resist that pressure and he's going to have to go to his B game. And from what I can tell from the striking standpoint, there's not a whole lot to be said about it. Hello, he's 17. There's not supposed to be. That's not a knock. I wouldn't imagine at 17 that there would be. Uh, easier to get good at grappling in your teens, I think, than it is to get ready to fight men as a striker in your teens, if that makes sense. You can get good at it, but the realities of hand-to-hand -hand combat sports make it a little bit harder to get the kind of live rolling experience you can get with jiu-jitsu. And... Uh, there remains a question there about what's going to happen to him if he doesn't develop the right way or if he runs into or gets a bad matchup or runs into someone who can ultimately repel that resistance. I go back to it, that opponent he had, Mendo Gutierrez, who's a good fighter. He's a good fighter. But he was making all kinds of errors, uh, noticeable ones by his corner, by the commentary team, you know, to, to engage in ways that he probably should not have engaged. You, you see a lot of people who realize, wow, intensity forces these guys to bend. Uh, intensity forces these guys to wilt. Intensity forces them into mistakes and bad positions. And they think more intensity right up front is better. Certainly, there is a tremendous value to intensity. But the fine-tuning of it, the fine-tuning of it is typically what separates good from bad fighters or successful ones over the long term from the ones who can just get you you can you can dude you can take that bum rush style pretty far actually you can take it pretty far but it will eventually once it once it gets figured out and once you hit a certain level it goes from being super valuable to falling off a cliff chimayev seems like he's got way too many weapons to suffer exactly that kind of cataclysmic decline but i go back to it like i don't know how scalable that is there's value in it there's value in it but like everything else, it's got some positives and it's got some negatives. All right. Uh, so, hey, Luke. So after watching 20 hours of BJJ this week, I find myself even more annoyed by back control in MMA. This person writes, I'm a brown belt myself. Uh, <laughs> oh, your fault, Luke. What, eight years ago, you should you said people should train. Thanks for the cauliflower. You're welcome. 
And every time I see MMA fighters hang onto the back with a do-nothing body triangle for three minutes, I die a little inside. I understand that the defenders are high level, but there's very few guys who try to trap the arm with their leg and address the deficit problem. I'll go over that in just a second. Why is this? I know we're talking Gordon Ryan, but once he has the back, look what he did to one of the best BJJ competitors ever. Am I wrong for thinking that any guy worth their salt should be able to finish from the back, especially with the added tool of being able to punch less? First of all, a lot of it, UFC fighters aren't brown belts. A lot of UFC fighters are blue belts. Um, some are purple. Some are like lifetime purples. Like you're already, at, in terms of your belt rank, higher than a lot of MMA fighters, a lot of UFC fighters. It's the first thing I'd say. Second of all, he's talking about the deficit problem. So let me explain the deficit problem to you. The, the, the basic idea is that if I lock up a body triangle, I have two hands and they have two hands, but I'm at a deficit because I actually need one more. Um, I, need, I need to have one more weapon than they do in order to properly secure the choke, which is why you'll see guys like Gordon Ryan, a lot of those Dan Hur guys, that he did it to Andre Galvan. He gets one leg over the arm. Now the arm is trapped. So now all he has is one hand. He's got his head and everything, but like he's got one hand. And so, or one arm, I should say. So now, yes, your legs are occupied, but now you have two. So it's it's just a numbers game. One arm against two. And the head, of course, is involved. There's weight distribution issues. There's more to it than just that, but that's what, that's what he's talking about with the deficit problem right? It's just math. It's just math. I need more weapons to control for these variable factors. It was something you saw, for example, with uh, in the, I think the rematch between Kevin Lee and um, Ray Janelle, Al Iquinta, where he was able to put the body triangle on and he was constantly hunting, constantly hunting for chokes and couldn't get it because at, in essence, while there is positional asymmetry, right? I have, if I'm Kevin Lee in this equation, I have his back or I have the back of ally Quinta. Um, that's better for me. My legs are tied up and he still has his two hands against mine. There's just not enough weapons involved. So that's what he's talking about there. Um, yeah, you're right. I just feel like in MMA, you, A, I don't, okay. First of all, you do see it. BJ Penn did it a long time ago. BJ Penn would lock up people or at least threaten it at times he would lock up people with that uh, leg over the arm and then he would go for the rear naked choke he understood the deficit problem much much earlier than a lot of folks ever did and still do in mma but it has been done you have seen it bj penn has been a great example of it now of course bj bj penn was a world champion in jiu-jitsu so he's going to have a level of ability that most folks don't but that just goes back to it you're talking about back control really 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 good back control is very hard to maintain and hard to do something with. And in MMA, the consequences of someone escaping that position are much more severe, I think, than they are in jiu-jitsu. Not to say that they're not consequential in jiu-jitsu. They are. But if I have someone's back... And by the way, another guy who, do, who does that is Crone Gracie. Crone Gracie is a guy who can put one leg over the arm and then you know benefit as a consequence. I'm going to make sure everything's good. Uh, okay. Um. So to answer the question, you're just talking about a level of specificity in the position that a lot of these guys just don't have time to get. They may not have the instruction that really works on that. They work on parts of their game that are they think are more, more valuable, takedowns, submission, defense, whatever it is. You're just asking them to have a level of skill development 
where they have 24 hours in a day and 365 days in a year, they have to make a cost benefit analysis about what to do. Now, your point might also be, well, if you're going to hunt the back and you're going to be a guy who attacks the back in, in MMA, it would behoove you to learn, you know, the nature of the deficit problem and then answers for it. Um, right. It would. But I, I tend to think that you're asking folks to have a level of skill development that is a lot harder to come by than a lot. I think folks realize. Um, so if you're able to do that consistently to training partners or in competition, God bless you. But the benefit of maintaining the back, even if you can't get the submission, I grant that sometimes I see people locking up the body triangle and it almost feels like they're stalling, you know, because they're not ever really all that close to anything. I get that, but it's actually hard to do what you're talking about. And I know, you know, that I'm just explaining to the audience. It's actually quite difficult. Um, and so it just becomes an issue of, uh, how much time in the day they have to work on those particular skills. I think what they would rather do is, you know, hunt for the submission, um, turn them over if they can pound them out. But what you don't want to do is lose that. And now you're on your back and someone is on top in MMA where you can get ground and pounded. You may not be able to get back to your feet. They could pass your guard. It could be devastating to lose. I mean, it can be, it can mean everything from half a paycheck to, you know, getting cut from the organization. I mean, the consequences are enormous for losing a position from the back. And so if they're going to lock up the body triangle, it ends up being just particularly bad uh, for action and not kind of the development you see in ADCC or high-level grappling, but that's just the reality of the sport based on the incentive structures built in. Let's go back. Hi, Luke. I'm bewildered when I watch Gordon Ryan matches. Compared to his competitors, he doesn't seem particularly fast or explosive in takedowns or submissions. What, are, what attributes do you think give him such success? I recall Danaher referencing his endurance and holding positions as a valuable asset, but watching him glide to back control, it seems like so much more. Yeah, he almost looks when he walks around like a little stiff more than he does, you know, um, athletically, you know, sort of loose and free-flowing. It almost seems like a little bit, you know, too muscled uh, in that way. Um, I do think he's got great endurance. Obviously, I think that's a great part. Of, uh, John Danaher had a post today saying that he was doing daily 30-minute matches to prepare um, uh, among other training things he was doing. One of those was uh, each day a 30-minute match of sparring, you know. Um, so obviously endurance is part of it. I, I This is the thing I made. This is the point I made on MK and, and then to start today's show. Like the idea, like if you wanted to tell me that he has benefited from, uh, again, to the extent he has ever used, Let's assume for the sake of this conversation that he has. Again, we are theorizing here. We are not making factual claims. But let's theorize that he has. If he has, and if he has for a while, I'm sure he has been aided by that. Endurance factors could be one. Grip strength. Other forms of strength. Core strength. Right? He's probably been able to work on quite well. Um, the fact that he's been able, that he has had that stomach issue, but let's assume otherwise. He's been able to train longer, and so he's been able to, you know, expedite skill development as a consequence right all those things play into each other probably among a number of other benefits if in fact it is true um but if you watch his game it's not built on brute strength it's not built on heft it's not built on bullying people it's not really even built on explosive athleticism it's it's built on a solid strength and endurance foundation matched with an understanding to me of leverages 
balance, timing, positional minutia, what to look for, when to go, when not to go, what works uh, against, you know, the, in these very particular situations, what doesn't. And he just seems to have that knowledge base much more than the rest of the sport, much more. Because the reality is, as much as people want to say he uses, and again, I suspect that he does. That's my personal opinion. I don't know that, but I suspect that he does. I don't give a shit, but either way. Um, Jossie Galvan, <laughs> did, it, did it look like the only thing he was on to you was creatine? How about any number of other competitors in that bracket, right? This idea, oh, he must have better drugs. Yeah, You think that's the answer, really? That he had better drugs? I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. I am sure that they call it performance-enhancing drugs for a reason, and I'm no doubt it has aided his performance and skill development. Like, it's not just strength and then skills, and they're utterly separate. They're connected, especially in the training environment. But the other piece of the puzzle is that his knowledge base of the sport is way higher, way higher. And so he doesn't have to use a lot of athleticism. He doesn't have to use a lot of strength because his timing, his understanding of position, his understanding of when to go, when not to, what to grip, leverages, fulcrums, the whole nine yards, all of that is here and everyone else is kind of like here. And that to me is the biggest difference um, that I can tell. Uh, Luke, why aren't all MK interviews added as podcasts? Is there a formula for what MK content gets added to the podcast? So typically the way it would work is if we did like a room service diaries, like the one with Chael, they put that on podcast. The one that I did with, did you guys see I did an interview with Fabiano Busque, the UFC Portuguese and Spanish translator. He speaks Italian as well, at least some measure of it. Um, that one I did not intend to go very long and it ended up going very long. It was close to like 50, 50 minutes. That probably should go out on podcast, but typically these ones that we do over Zoom, you know, they're of marginal value. They're pretty short, 20 minutes or less. There's not, I mean, I did one with Jake Paul that was like 12 minutes. I mean, there wasn't much to it, you know. That, that's why it didn't go out on podcast because it was never intended as a long-form piece of content. Um, it ended up being one, and so for that reason, we could probably do it, but that would be the reason. We would only do regular shows, resume reviews, RSDs, some kind of feature content. This was just an interview that happened to go long. I recognize that it still kind of fits more with what we actually put on podcast versus not, but that tends to be the differentiator. Boy, a lot of grappling questions here. Uh, Luke, I don't know how much you focus on the rest of the ADCC this year. Would love to know your opinion on things as uh, uh, Duarte coming, dominating Craig Jones. Didn't see any of that. 19-year-old Cade Ruotolo, I did see some of what he did. Becoming the youngest ADCC winner while getting submissions in all four rounds of the tournament. Those two fucking guys, those brothers, they are something different, man. Also, I thought it was interesting how uh, irrelevant the seeding was to the results. For example, the average seed in the finals was sixth. Uh, love the content as always. I didn't watch, I will candidly tell you, I watched what Gordon Ryan did and not a whole lot of other things. So I'd kind of be speaking a little bit out of turn. And so for that reason, I'll I'll just say, you know, you should ask somebody else. But, um, I, you know, the Ruotolo brothers, amazing. They are, they are a joy to watch. And by the way, uh, is it Mika, Micah Galvan? He's a fucking absolute animal as well. He's going to be a handful too. A lot, a lot of uh, young BJJ phenoms that are doing very impressive things. Uh, okay. 
Could Hamzat become a pay-per-view superstar like Connor, Ronda, and Brock? During the last chat, at least 65% of the questions concerned him. And now, his content-related videos on YouTube do amazing numbers. His social media presence is huge, and his fighting style is spectacular. Yeah, he could. Mm-hmm. He absolutely could. He'll need a rival. He'll need some big fights. Um, he'll need the right promotion. He'll need the right performances. But do, are the ingredients in place? Yep. He speaks English, first of all, which is a big help. He has, an, as you indicated, an incredible fight style. Um, I do think there tends to be something of a phenomenon, and I could be speaking out of turn. And if I am, you know, please don't hold it against me. I'm trying to honestly assess these things. It does seem like the, and I'm, this is very broadly speaking, but you know how like after Habib started winning, you would see him, especially after the Conor fight, he was doing like media tours or like, you know, speaking engagements throughout parts of the world that have, I don't want to call it the Islamic world, that, that that's sort of an outdated way of thinking about it. But, you know, in countries with the predominant um, Muslim populations, he was going to these places and doing speaking tours and they were really rallying behind him. I'm told that these were actually globally speaking large sources of his support. There does seem to be also the sort of coalescing um, uh, feature um, around like very talented, very prominent. And Mo Salah was another one who's, you know, from, from Liverpool who gets a lot of attention as well. So that could boost his fortunes. There's a lot of different things, but yes, like are the ingredients in place for him to take the hype job that has so far been much of his career, not entirely all of it, and then actually turn that into like, not that he has had legitimate wins, but to take the hype and then build it into something even bigger. Yes. Yes. He could be a very, very, very big pay-per-view star. Yes. Now on the level of Ronda and Brock and Connor. Yeah, that's asking a lot, but you know, a leading figure, if not the leading figure in the company for pay-per-views. Is that possible? Yes. Yes, it is. All right, let's get back to the Rosas Jr. thing. Uh, Luke, I appreciate all of your content. Thank you. Uh, my question is, do you have any more expanded thoughts on signing of the 17-year-old Rosas to the UFC? At one point, I know I would have been fine with it, but now I feel very uncomfortable with it. No, I don't feel all that uncomfortable with it, especially in the deepest division, bantamweight. I feel like uh, watching those Chase Cooper beatings turned me off. No disrespect to their talent. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I don't really agree with... I, okay, I'm not, like, uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable with it. I just think it's... Listen, nobody can predict the future. I cannot predict the future. As I stand for, before you today or sit before you today, I cannot sit here and tell you it's going to be a disaster because I don't know that. I don't know that. There are so many factors between now and whatever eventually happens to him, whether he becomes a champion or whether he flames out or something in between, for us to really have any clear sense of things. So I don't know what's going to happen. But I think that they are courting risk. And unnecessarily so. The records of his opponents prior to the win. Again, the win over Amanda Gutierrez was good. That's a solid, solid win. No doubt about it. Like That's a good opponent that he beat. And he beat him pretty clearly. Right? Okay. I'll give him that. But the wins he had before that, I think his opponents had a combined record of 4-9. and nine. In fact, let's go through that here if we can. Let's pull that up. How about this? Let's actually look at what he had done. I want two points I'd like to make about this. All right. Let's pull this up, shall we? Here is his record. Let's blow this up a little bit for you guys so you can see. Uh, there's plenty of ads here from HBO Max. Thank you. Uh, okay. So Gianni Grippo, this was a grappling contest. Doesn't can't, uh, count. Luis uh, Quinones. This was a grappling contest. Doesn't count. These are amateur results. He only had two amateur fights. Not that many. 
So his actual MMA debut was against Eduardo Velazquez, 0-2. Okay, so that's the combined record thus far, 0-2. Uh, Yoel Pena, that's how, um, believe it or not, oh, Jesus, for the love of God. Uh, let's see. 1-1. One one. So now the combined record is 1-3. and three. Let's go to Francisco Vel- uh, Villa Nueva. Let's go 1-1. One and one. So now it's what? Uh, 2 and... I can't believe my math here. It was uh, two and four, right? Because it was zero and two. Sorry, it was one and one. So now it's one and three, right? One and three, and now it's two and four. Okay, so it's two and four. Oh Jesus Christ! After the Villanueva fight, all right, two and four. So then we go to Pena. Jesus Christ! Then we go to Pena Losa. Two and one. So now it's uh, let's see. It was two and four. So now it's four and five. Okay. And then Porto Carrero 0 and 4. 4 and 9 was the record. 4 and 9 was the record. He was not beating established talent. He was beating just dudes. Just dudes. Those are just guys he was fighting. He was not fighting that we can tell anyone of note. Okay? Now, I would argue he's not supposed to be right? This is actually appropriate matchmaking for not so much a 17-year-old, but for someone just starting out. You would not want to put them against somebody very tough very early, right? So I don't have it, I don't have any issue with that on its own. And then he gets this win over uh, Mando Gutierrez, which is a very nice win. Gutierrez uh, gets a very nice win. And so let's count that as well. Like in the totality of the resume, clearly that was a step up and he answered the call. Great. No problem. But the point I'm trying to make is, what were y'all looking at where y'all saw Prodigy? Didn't see that. Didn't see that. In fact, I saw the, not the opposite of that, but he looked to me exactly like you would if you were a very talented 17-year-old. Just shot out of a cannon, full-on crazy. In fact, what would have surprised me and would make me feel differently is if he was not that as if he was much more of not like you have to be exactly like Piotr Jan, but like Jan takes his time. See, that's a veteran fighter. Now you're like, well, what about Hamzat? Right, but Hamzat is this weird outlier. The vast majority of the elite fighters, your Whitakers, your, uh, your, your Volkanovskis, whoever you want to pick, your very, very high-level guys, they take their time. They, they make reads. They make adjustments, some quicker than others, right? But then they all have different styles. If he had done that... Now, that would have caught my attention. That, to me, would have told me he's fighting actually outside of his age range. To me, he was fighting very much inside of it. And he had some, you know, again, he beat all those guys I just showed you. That's nice. Like, that's great. He didn't beat anybody special. He didn't beat anybody noteworthy. And he had the back for, let's let's see how long he had the back. Let's actually look at this from Fight Metric. How long did he have the back? I uh, don't know if they have any. Oh, yes, they do. Okay. He had the back. Look at this. He had the back first round. I know you can't see this. Four minutes and 17 seconds. Round two, three minutes and 39 seconds. Round three. Or he had you know control positions anyway. Three minutes and 59 seconds. So that's not entirely the back, but that's mostly time spent on the back. So he had the back for nearly again, or at least dominant control positions 
for nearly 12 minutes, probably, let's say, just to be conservative, he had the back for 10 minutes. And he couldn't get the finish. Now, again, it sounds like I'm shitting on him. I'm not shitting on him. For 17, that is very good. What about that tells you championship future? I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I'm sorry. Uh, I see a guy who clearly will be already good enough to be in the UFC. Yes, he's, I mean, the kid can fight. He can fight. But you need to have a solid foundational level of development where you can fine-tune the other parts before you head to the organization or an organization like the UFC. He hadn't beaten, again, the, the contender series win is nice, but before that, those wins are, they mean nothing. He's less than 18 years of age and had significant amounts of control time, which tells me in this, in this contender series fight, he's good at positional control and good at positional achievement, not so great at positional finishing, or excuse me, at uh, submission finishing against anyone of a reasonable level. Those other guys he beat, yeah, he subbed those guys. What's, what the fuck does that mean? So what would I have done? I definitely wouldn't let him walk to Bellator. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying, oh, he has no place here. Send him to the PFL. That's not what I'm saying. But being like, I'm going to be a champ in by the time I'm 20. He's 18. Folks, that is, I'll bet against that. I'll bet against that. I'll bet against the idea that in two years' time, he'll be better than the very best of these guys at 135 pounds. Count me as the skeptic on that one. Um, certainly, again, you guys might feel differently. You might have a different argument. I, I I don't care so much that they signed a guy two weeks before his 18th birthday. To me, that seems like focusing on an irrelevant detail. But just watching a young guy go berserk on another dude and kind of run him over with pressure, especially when that other guy makes a lot of errors, and then the fights before that are important for like you know getting experience, but don't signify high-level achievement in any kind of way, and then he has significant duration in dominant positions and then can't find the finish against a guy who, again, we're not talking about, I think Bill Algio is a black belt. Like it's, We're not talking about Andre Feely being able to sub that guy. Very, very different equation. You know, And by the way, highly experienced UFC fighter at this point. These are different levels we're, we're talking about here. Um, different weight classes too, but you get my point. So I see a very talented guy who needs a development deal, and then in a year or two time, two's time, then bring him over. But right now, he seems green. Green. Very green. That is my official position on this. My official position is that he's got a lot of ability, and he probably does have, you know, potentially a bright future. I don't think he's UFC ready, which doesn't mean you can't beat guys there. You know, they can find interesting ways to matchmake you. But in general, to have an enduring uh, career there, he is risking a lot. He is risking a lot. And what happens if he takes the wrong fight, you know, takes it on short notice, gets hurt unexpectedly to the body in ways he had never experienced because now he's fighting grown fucking men, right? And can't muster the same intensity and takes a bad beating. Now where are we? You can fuck a guy up like that. I'm telling you, I've seen it. I have seen it. I have seen it. I am not omnicompetent. What I say here, nothing is biblical. You already know that. I know that and you know that. But I have been around a little while and I have seen a lot of MMA prospects come and go, especially ones with high promise, especially ones, you know, 21-year-old guys who were national champions in Division One wrestling, and uh, they take a beating once, and they're not the same afterwards. You have to be very careful with people this young. To me, you know, I for his sake, I hope that everything I say here is utterly incorrect. 
but I didn't see anything there that told me anything other than he was a very talented 17-year-old, 18-year-old about to be kid. Did I see anything special beyond that? No, I did not. No, I did not. All right, let's find another one. Um, so it's a good question, actually. This is interesting. Dana said, because Hamzat missed by eight and a half pounds, the commission won't let the fight go ahead because Nate weighed at 170, yet D-Rod weighed at 180 and the leech weighed at 170. I think he was 171, to be fair. Can you please explain how this makes sense? The difference is that Hamzat was eight and a half pounds over after a failed attempt to make weight. Now, I know the doctor intervened, but there are some other details that have since come to light that have suggested that, you know, his body was rejecting it. And so it's less about the difference there, I think. Again, I'm, I, you would have to ask the commission, and they simply don't tell you why they do things, right? They I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when the Nevada Athletic Commission put out pay reports, pay, the salaries. Now they don't do that because they're basically in bed with the promoters. That's, a, that's the only explanation. Don't believe any other fucking nonsense that they ever say. They're in bed with the promoters against the fighters. That is exactly what is happening that they, they protect the economic interests more than the health and safety of the fighters. Facts on facts on facts. It's another issue. My hunch would be that because in the case of Leach and D-Rod, you didn't have anybody who had any kind of medical issue related to weight. And Hamzat did, but because Holland was near that, they kind of let it go. That would, be, that would be my explanation. But honestly, this is a question for the commission because I don't know. Um, I, I hate these questions. Who is the biggest waste of talent in MMA history? This person writes Mayhem Miller. Mayhem did some good things. Like, it's not like Mayhem was some kind of gigantic failure. He had a weird flame out. That's true. But it wasn't like he ever, like, you know, May Mayhem beat some good fighters. He was on some big cards. He did some stuff, old Mayhem. But, um, Bob Sapp is a name you could go to. Um, God, who was the guy in Pride that they just... Uh, Rulon Gardner was one, but there was another one. It was the... Who was the Egyptian gold medalist in wrestling in the Olympics that signed with Pride and got fucked up? Let me see if I can find his name. Um, oh, uh, Kar Karim Gaber. Uh, Gaber, however you pronounce his last name. So he was a Greco-Roman wrestler. He won the gold medal in 2004 and he won the silver in athens in 2012 he fought uh, kazuyuki fujita who rocked fedor nearly beat fedor once in december 14 he got fucked up never fought again he was like nope this is what i mean like just they just threw that motherfucker to the wolves and then he was like yeah i had enough of that thanks uh, i will i will not be coming back all right so let's good question here it's an important one so Corey Sandhagen is a highly skilled striker, but he doesn't seem to make the best decisions, and he gets hit much more than you'd expect for someone as talented as him. What do you attribute this to? It's a good question, and it's actually some of the criticisms I've had of him as a, an observer, for whatever that is worth, because you guys know I still believe he could be champion. I think that there's a good chance he might be at some point. It's a tough division. That's what I mean. Like, you're going to run over guys like Sandhagen in two years? Okay. Good luck. Uh, Chito Vera. Okay, good luck with that. Um, but anyway, neither here nor there. 
So a couple things. One, when guys like Sandhagen have really good chins, and he has a fucking dynamite chin. People never talk about that for some reason. Sandhagen's durability is amazing. Okay, it's amazing. I tend to think that they view it like it feels. Right? So even if their head gets popped back and they got, you know, a red ribs here from getting torched by body kicks or whatever it may be, if they don't really feel it, they're like, well, if it doesn't affect me, what, who cares? Why would, why, would, why would anyone care? Of what significance is any of this? Uh, and they don't understand it from the judging perspective about what you're looking for for damage and like how, how, what kind of message it can send to get your head popped back or turned or cut or something. Um, they tend to view it. I've noticed, and I've talked to fighters with good chins about this. Like, I didn't feel anything. I didn't realize the judges would care, you know, because they, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt them in the ways that you might imagine or in other typical kinds of scenarios. So that's one thing. The other one would be like the bad decision-making. If I, I don't, I think actually Corey has very high fight IQ in a lot of really important respects, especially in the standup. He's got extremely high fight IQ, I think. But in other ways, um, I think he feels like, from what I can tell, and by the way, we're setting up an interview with him, fingers crossed. So we'll see how that goes. I want to do like a long sit down with him. Um, I get the feeling that what's really at play is there's an adjustment that they feel like they have to make in order to accommodating accommodate how judging works, not what actually they think matters or what they think counts. You'll note that a lot of fighters, and this is this is what happens. Like, for example, we've we've seen a lot of like there's been a lot of the criticism of the UFC commentary team for not knowing the rules of judging, or how about the takedown? Like, what the commission considers a takedown is not the same as what fight metric considers a takedown. Because what fight metric is, or or what counts as a takedown in wrestling, it's actually three different definitions or view, ways of viewing it. Because what fight metric needs is something that speaks to the realities of MMA uh, fighting versus wrestling alone, and more to that point, something that is something that they can model and track statistically. So it has to have significance for MMA and has to be something that they can track. So they're going to have a special definition for that to make that work. So when Daniel Cormier gets in the broadcast, he's like, I've been wrestling all my life. You know, I think I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. For actual wrestling and, and, and how to execute inside MMA wrestling. Of course, do you know by virtue of fighting how modeling and statistics works? No, fuck. No, of course not. Like, of course not. So they're kind of speaking past each other here a little bit in that sense. But the idea is that a lot of fighters will be like, well, we should get fighters to be judges fighting is a very good base to get trained to be a judge. It is not a substitute for it. I bring this up to say a lot of fighters think that the way in which they fight, their understanding of it is the best way, not the only way, but the best way. It's like it's been enlightening to them. This is how they, this is the prism by which they perceive the rest of the world. And so unless these kinds of bad events happen, again, I thought he beat TJ Dillashaw, but like, these events inform his judgment about what kinds of things he needs to get away from that are not working for him in order to find ways to get the judges more on his side. It's a, it, it, They view it as like, oh, I know fighting better, but I have to fight for the criteria. I have to fight for the realities of 
how this is being adjudicated by three, uh, in theory, independent arbiters. And so there is the, the adjustment is that way rather than thinking like, hey, I get hit a lot and, you know, I make decisions that are kind of wonky. Like what he his natural instinct. A lot of it's also like what becomes natural to them. Oh, and it comes, it's natural to Corey. It looked like for a while if he got taken down to then roll underneath, you know, try some kind of leg lock. And he has Ryan Hall in his in his in his. It, it, I think it's actually says a lot of good things about Ryan Hall that Ryan Hall is one of his grappling coaches now and he trains with Ryan Hall and he didn't really go for hardly any leg locks at all here because Ryan just because he's good at leg locks doesn't mean he wants you to only use leg locks. He wants you to use them when they're appropriate. And so I bet that they really worked on on that part of his game, but they probably thought, get up, get up, don't sit underneath, don't spend time underneath, get up, don't go for shit like that, get up, whatever it has to be, or initiate the takedown so you're already on top. It's things like that. It's addressing things that cost him in previous fights as a way to fight according to the criteria, not what they consider to be actual fighting. And I think that this idea, like what they think actually counts, it can be very valuable. It can be hugely important and it defines their worldview, but it can get them into trouble in some of these alternate scenarios where they're being judged up against a separate set of criteria or, um, uh, you know, there's other definitions for similar or identical words in play. I'll do a couple more of these. Oh, fuck this guy. Let's go to this. Listen to this. I mean, I don't really mean fuck this guy, but like, listen to this. Hi, hey Luke. I'm turning 30 in a couple of days and I already feel washed. Go fuck your life. I was wondering how your 30s went for you and if you have any advice on how to get back into being active while maintaining a career in family. Dude, what on earth are you complaining about? I'm turning 30 in a couple of days. So, first of all, you're 29. Do you hear yourself, motherfucker? Do you hear yourself? I'm 30 and I feel washed. Bitch, I've got terrible news for you. However washed you feel, <laughs> magnify at times 8 billion, and that's what it's going to be at 40. Dude, at 30, you can do anything you want. Anything you want. Now, yes, I know some people have, you know, obviously some people might have a disability or, you know, they work a lot of hours. Okay, all right. I, I, I understand it. Not everyone's got it easy peasy. Okay, fine, fine. But for your average 30-year-old, such that we can make a declaration about them, you don't have any excuse. You have nothing. You have nothing. What you are discovering is not that 30 is washed. What you are discovering is that the corners you didn't realize you were cutting at 20, you can't cut as many of them at 30. But the truth is, dude, you don't have to do much at 30 to um, feel great. Dude, it's the same thing you have to do at 40 and everything else. You need to eat right, you need to get good sleep, you need to hydrate, and you need to have a work-life balance. Like, this is not difficult, dude. I don't want to hear shit about anybody 30 years old complaining about this nonsense. I don't want to hear a fucking thing. Nothing. Zero. Dude, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. Um, At 30, you... St dude, by the way, 30 is a pro athlete's fucking athletic prime. Come on, man. Miss me with this bullshit. You're fine. You're fine. As my drill instructors would say, go and get all the straws you can find and suck it the fuck up. That's my advice to you. Suck it the fuck up, please. You are okay. You are okay. All right. Let's see what we got on some of these comments here. Uh, the starred one. You know what? Let's see. I don't know if we have that many paid ones. We might not. In which case, I think we only have two. Jesus Christ. That is not many. 
All right, that's fine. I'm certainly not owed anything. Uh, let me just double check to make sure it's not a larger issue. And we'll get through those and then I'll be that. All right, let's see. Just to double check. All right, let's see here. Oh, no, there's more. Uh, they weren't starred properly. Actually, there's a bunch. Okay, great. Um, well, that's unfortunate that I don't have those. Uh, the ability to put on screen. I don't know where my guy Othello is. Oh, fuck me. All right. Well, I can do them, but... Um, Come on, man. All right. Well, Othello's going to get a phone call after this. I can assure you that. Uh, okay. Let's put this one on screen. From Jeff. Look at Jeff's face. Jeff, why why, why so serious, Jeff? All right, Luke, thanks for everything. How do you avoid burnout in media journalism? I'm really struggling to find balance despite journalism being my passion. Boundaries in this job seem impossible. Yes, they are impossible. I don't know what to tell you, man. Um, I know a lot of people are like, you need to have work life balance. I've, there's this whole controversy about quiet quitting and stuff like that. I can just tell you in my world, in this world, in the world in which I have worked and tried to develop, um, you will not succeed if you try to maintain those boundaries. So you got to make a choice about whether another, um, another profession is a better fit for you. Yeah. Um, so that's the best I can tell you. Uh, let's see. Luke, were you serious about the bed bugs at Park MGM? <laughs> Not really, no. Uh, what hotel would you actually recommend for fight fans in Vegas? First of all, let me just warn you. If you're going to go to Vegas, there is a very high chance you're going to get a communicable disease. Maybe COVID, maybe not. You'll probably get the flu and Lord knows what STDs you might get, but you are going to get a communicable disease. Every time somebody I know who doesn't live there goes there for a fight week and then comes back, they always come back sick. Rhinovirus, coronavirus, influenza, you name it, you're going to get it. Uh, Park MGM or otherwise, you're going to get it. Um, I'll tell you this. It's the place I stay all the time. It's my favorite spot to go to. Um, Mandalay Bay. I like Mandalay Bay. I think if you if you book in advance, you can get a very reasonable rate. Number one, it can be uh, much less than 200 if you book well in advance uh, per night. Obviously, you know, this is not the cheapest thing on earth. Um, but uh, it can still be affordable for, by Vegas standards. And, you, and, and you're on the strip. First of all, so you're on the strip. The other part is that, like, if you look at the Vegas Strip, let me I can pull up a map here. Let's see. Let's go to Google Maps. I want to show you this. Let's do this. Let's put in Las Vegas Strip. And then I want to show you something. Okay, here is Las Vegas. So, okay. Let me blow this up a little bit. Okay. Here we go. Uh, 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 uh. For the love of Jesus. There we go. Let's put this up. Okay. Let me throw, let me show this to you. So, here is the strip. 
right? Circus Circus. This is the uh, technically the north end of the strip, right? Uh, Circus Circus is. Uh, if you guys have never stayed at Circus Circus, I stayed there as a as a marine in like 1999. Broke as fuck. Had no money, so I was the only place we could afford. And I was an enlisted guy. I wasn't an officer at the time. And uh, they had a they have it. You know, all these hotels have like their own like TV channel and shit. Their at the time their internal channel was 24 seven clowns. Not that fun. Anyway, neither here nor there. This is the strip right here. This little piece. This uh, this this spot right here. So you've got the Venetian. You got the Wynn. You got resorts. You got the Golden Tiki. Then Caesars, right? You've got Bellagio. Everyone knows Bellagio. Then you got the Cosmo. Cosmo's nice. Uh, Aria is really nice as well. There's Park MGM. That's the one that right next to T-Mobile. Then you got Excalibur, where they literally have dirty poker chips. Luxor, where you know it looks cool on the strip, but not that money. And then you got Mandalay Bay. And then, by the way, Shark Reef Aquarium is at Mandalay Bay. This is all part of the same. Oops, excuse me. This is all part of the same um, area. After Mandalay Bay. There are other things you see here, Town Square, Las Vegas. The strip stops right here. It stops right here, okay, at Mandalay Bay. It stops. So what's the point I'm trying to make? If you are staying at some place like, let's say, Park MGM or Bellagio, for example, if you're staying at the Bellagio, there's all kinds of foot traffic coming and going on either direction. Now, people are coming to Mandalay Bay all the time. Please don't misunderstand me. But... The reality is um, you get a little less riffraff there, a little less riffraff. So the rooms are nice. They're modern. The place is great. There's tons to do and see there. If you get them early enough, you can get them affordably. And then on top of it, it's at the end of the strip. It's a little bit, you know, <laughs> how do I put this? Uh, a little less Greyhound bus station is the way I would like to put that. All right. Uh, now I think Othello was adding them, so I hope he gets them all. But either way, let's try and do this one. Uh, you think local nurses and the like get pissed at the extra work on fight nights? No, I don't think they give a shit one way or the other. Uh, opinion on TRT. Um, if it's a good thing for a person to try, then they should. I probably will eventually get on it. I'm not really at that stage yet. For me, everyone's got a different choice to make, but um, that's kind of where I am. So I I don't know what the I don't know what the question is. Like, should people take drugs that they might feel like improve their lives if they feel like it might improve their lives? Sure. There are some questions about some of the long-term considerations in play and what it might do to you. Uh, I think that's fair, but uh, in general, I don't. Drugs, all drugs, basically, basically, all drugs have intelligent use cases, right? Uh, I told you guys about this book. Let me pull it up here. Um, let me make a recommendation. This is so much handier to have this so I can show you guys stuff. Let me show you this. I've been reading this book. You guys know Dr. Carl L. Hart? Let me show you here. Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. He teaches at Columbia University, and uh, this book is incredible. I couldn't recommend it more. He was actually on Rogan's podcast, if you wanted to just hear the podcast, rather than you know go through the book. But I, I obviously, I always recommend reading. Don't listen to Kanye. You should definitely read. 
But the point I want to make here is that um, in this book, he sort of notes that like, obviously heroin can be a really damaging drug, but the the research shows unequivocally that the vast majority of heroin users are not addicted. I know that sounds crazy. The vast majority of meth users are not addicted. Um, this idea that meth face is a thing turns out to be just total bullshit. You have no idea how much the coalesced forces of media hysteria and government busybodies working together have given you incredibly shitty information about the reality of drugs. Yes, drugs pose risks, in some cases, very serious ones. But the way to fix that is not to prohibit them necessarily, except in certain cases, obviously. But in general, for adults, for adults, um, it is to craft ways to have intelligent use cases. So is there an intelligent use case for testosterone replacement therapy? I would suspect that there is. Yeah, I would suspect that there is. Uh, from Please No Baus, Yanez versus Yudong, thoughts on the matchup and how it might play out? Oof. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, Yanez is a much more of a sharpshooter and a much more crafty striker. A guy like Song Yudong is a fucking heavy-handed, powerful dude. And Yanez takes a little bit of damage early. Three-round fight, that's a coin flip. Maybe even might lean Yudong. Uh, five round fight. If, if Adrian Yanez keeps improving, I think he could win that one for sure. He's very talented, very talented guy. Someone says $5 to cut my guy Othello some slack. I love Othello. He actually was very helpful today. He was supposed to meet me at the studio today to move the TV. And then I called him. I was like, turn around, turn around. My car's having issues. So I was supposed to see him today, but I was like, yo, motherfucker, you gotta be starring this shit earlier. All right. From Ron Jokar. I'm sure I'm saying that name wrong, Patel. Hello. <laughs> I'm wanting to become fitter for UFC, but I live in India. I'm number something. <laughs> I don't know, bro. Just keep training. Just keep training. How about that? White cheeks greater than BBL. Well, everyone's got their own preferences. Uh, I would not agree. Hamzat's coach said COVID effed up the weight cut. Thoughts? Do you think that other fighters will feel the effect of long COVID? Shout out to Shat. Well, I know a lot of you don't even believe in long COVID or that COVID is at all bad. So I, I really hate these conversations. I had folks, someone email me being like, why aren't you talking about COVID anymore? It's like, wow, is that what you guys miss? You want to talk about COVID again? Really? The reason why I don't talk about it as much is because the die is cast. Um, we didn't do really, no one in the world really did, but the, there wasn't much done to mitigate the spread. Um, so the spread has happened. It is here. And before when we didn't really have any interventions, we had no medicine you could take like Paxlovid, uh, or vaccines or whatever you want to use for treatment. Um, we didn't have those. Now we do. So we're still losing about 500 people a day, which is fucking high, but there does not appear to be much political will to do anything about it. If you want the medicines or the treatments or the preventative measures, you can have access to them. They exist now. Um, by and large, they're quite effective or at least helpful in reducing all um, mortality anyway. And uh, I think that's about as acceptable as a trade you're going to get. So the reason I don't bring it up anymore is like we have medicine and treatment for it. Like um, what else am I supposed to say? 
you know, when we didn't have those and the people were, you know, fist fighting stewardesses on planes because they didn't want to wear a mask. I thought that was about the fucking dumbest thing I'd ever seen in my life. But now there is no mask mandate. Again, we have various treatments if you want access to those. Uh, it's still killing a lot of people, but not like, it, you know, it was killing over, it was killing at one point like four or 5,000 people a day. We're down to 500. So that's a lot better. But um, that's why I don't talk about it anymore is because we are already, we are where we are and the trade has been made. We've got treatments. It's here. That's just what we're going to have to live with now. So the die is cast. Now you're asking about long COVID. I know a lot of folks don't believe in it. I don't, I have not read a ton about long COVID to have any kind of particularly informed opinion about it. But I will say this, here's my only part about potentially COVID fucking him up. Who's to say we don't really know, but surely you guys know people who have had COVID and it wasn't that bad. I had COVID. It wasn't that bad. Right. Um, you probably know people who had COVID and it was kind of bad. And some of you might know people who had COVID and died. I do like, there's just, there's just ranges of how it's affected people. Right. Obviously, the vast majority of people are fine, but it does affect some people badly. And what do we also know about Hamzat Shemayev? We also know that he goes balls out crazy. And remember, he was coughing up blood. I'm sure that it fucked him up. The question is, did it fuck him up long term or did it do something to his body where now he can't react the same? I'll say this. It's a plausible theory. It's a plausible theory. We, You probably, no matter what your opinion on all of this on the COVID world, you probably know some people that had really fucking bad COVID. How about um, Raquel Pennington? She admitted she had a whopper of a case, a whopper of a case. It happens. Some people get it. They don't even know it. Some people get it, and it's kind of mild. And then there's just there's just different experiences all the way up to death. It can happen. So, and if what, what's the first thing they tell you when you get COVID, right? Relax. Take it easy. Drink some water. You know, sit this one out. Take this, take this round off, so to speak. Hamza didn't do any of that. He went right back to the gym or how, as soon as he could. And he was, you know, he's just fucking insane intensity at all times. He might have really damaged something as a consequence. He might have really fucked himself up proper. So it remains to be seen. Let's see if he can make welterweight again. But do I think what the coach is saying is plausible? Yeah, I definitely think what the coach is saying is plausible. All right. Uh, Johnny mashed potatoes. My question got deleted twice, but what's the worst heartbreak you've had? I've been over this a few times. Um, let's see. I broke up with the person I dated before I met my wife was a horrific breakup. Uh, absolutely devastating, devastating in every way. Um, broke me completely. I've talked about this before. It's nothing new. I'm saying here broke me in ways where I just could not understand how I was going to be able to move forward again. So that was pretty bad. Um, I, I've never really put it on these terms. I wouldn't call it heartbreak in this way. I thought the way that things ended for me at Vox Media were insanely disappointing. Insanely disappointing. And I harbor an enormous amount of resentment towards them for how they treated me. But um, but more, more than just that, I... I I'm like so disappointed it went the way that it went um, in large part because of, of uh, you know, what I thought I had done for the company and, and everything else. But um, obviously they didn't see it that way. I don't think they gave two fucks about what I did for the company, but um, that has bothered me. That has really, 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 really bothered me. 
how that ended uh, and how that was so unnecessary that it ended the way that it did. And I have, I don't have regrets about what I did. I can assure you that. Let me be very clear about that. I have regrets that, or I have, um, I have profound disappointment that everything kind of collapsed in the way that it did. Um, but that's, that's their cross to bear. That's their 100% their fault. And, um, it will always be their fault. All right. Do you have any book recommendations on striking book recommendations? No, but I can give you this. How about this? Let me help you out. Oh, um, what's that dude? Uh, the modern martial artist from YouTube. He's got some books. I can't speak for all of them, um, but uh, I got a better idea. Not a better idea. Another idea, because his books might be quite good. Let me show you this. Right? Okay. Uh, how about this? Let's put this off. So you can go to BJJ Fanatics, but they also have something called Striking Fanatics. Dude, look at all of these. This is just a portion of them. They've got, I mean, look at the pages. It goes up to 16. Tons and tons and tons of tutorials. Think of each of these as a seminar you could attend. Right, that's how you should think of it. So let's pick one. Uh, let's look at um, Sahudo's got one, but I want to pick one. We got some Barry Robinson ones in there. Those are really good too, but those are very dense. Let's pick. Let's pick another one. How about the Teddy Atlas one? That's a weird one too. How about this one from Mike Tyson? The fundamentals of peekaboo boxing. Right now, it's two hundred bucks, but they have sales all the time. Look at all of this stuff, all of the different ways, the outside slip, fighting low and closing space, perfecting the peekaboo, volume two. They went through all the fights and how he used stuff. Now, this one's even even shorter. This one's not that great in terms of all the stuff that they have. But let's pick, well, fine, we can go to like the Barry Robinson one with the rhythm step. Barry's a great trainer, right? Look at all of this shit. The lock step, the ghost step, figure eights, galloping steps, time stamps, every, why people rhythm step, when people rhythm step, how people rhythm step, volume two. Attacking the rhythm step, big man game, uh, big man game, audible feints, three, ace, deuce, foreman, Marquez, attacks versus the rhythm step, jab to the body, all this shit. Dude, like, yes, of course, if you prefer to read, I would never dissuade you from it, but I can't overemphasize this enough. This shit 15 years ago and the way in which it exists now never existed. There was no YouTube you could go to. There was no people like in one place collecting all of these different uh, tutorials, putting them in organized fashion. By the way, once you buy it, you can download it and you can keep it permanently. I just, I can't, I, I'm not sponsored by BJJ Fanatics. They don't give me any money to say any of this shit. I say this because I use that product as somebody who doesn't have time to go and train like I used to and it's just not a reality for me. This is not a substitute for training. I want to be very clear about that. It's not a substitute for it, but it is a nice supplement to it or for someone like me, just keeps me a little bit more in tuned with what is currently in practice out there so I can build off what knowledge I do have and kind of keep adding to it. So it's a way for me to stay a little bit sharp um, or as sharp as I possibly can given the circumstances. But for someone who wants to train or learn, dude, I can't recommend more highly the Striking Fanatic slash BJJ Fanatic services. It, there's just so much good information, easily accessible, and you can own it. I mean, it, what's better than that? What's better than that? 
Uh, all right. I have been smoking for seven years. I want to quit for health reasons, but not sure if I could completely give up. So I was thinking about vaping. How much better is vaping than smoking? Well, it doesn't have the tobacco stuff, but it's got all the nicotine. My wife quit smoking for vaping. I would just tell you, just fucking stop smoking and don't go to vaping. Like, there's no good reason to vape. Va vaping, listen, as a guy who vapes, vaping is stupid, right? It's it's not good for you. It's not all that great. I'm just kind of addicted to the nicotine at this point, but don't do it. Just Just find a way to quit. Let's see. Have you read the book Left of Boom? I have not. I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, how much in the super chat for you to buzz off that salt and pepper? Why would you want me to cut my hair? I, I've never understand the need to police my appearance. I don't quite get that. Now, um, I did think, I think that Othello missed a few. So let me go in here and get the rest so I don't fuck this up. There's a few more. All right, let's see. Oh, here we go. Is the price people pay for PED use in sport worth it? What price do you imagine that they pay? Of course, there are risks, big time risks with anabolic steroids. Is the price people, if depends on what they're, what they want and what they're willing to accept. I would say in a lot of cases, it is uh, very much worth it. Very much worth it. All right. Uh, Steven writes, love the Fabiano interview. Appreciate that type of content. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. I'm trying to do more of that. What's the new tattoo? It's not fully healed yet, but I got a big tiger all the way on my arm up it um, from, um, from uh, Ryan Clark at District Tattoo. Can't recommend him enough, man. Those guys are phenomenal. When it's fully, fully healed, I'll let you guys see it, but it's still a little bit um, peeling. So there you have it. Best advice for starting a YouTube channel and biggest mistakes. Best advice is if you're going to do it, treat it like you're getting a dog. You just now have this thing and you have to take care of it 24-7, man. Um, you I, And this is heeding my own advice. MK has obviously changed the, my dynamic with this, but um, you have to... You have to upload a lot and consistently. The biggest thing I could tell people is you, you have to do much more than what I'm doing on this channel. You have to constantly update. So it, do it if you're prepared to maintain it. If you're not, don't do it. Uh, hey, Luke, you are a girl dad inspo. This person writes, Matt writes, uh, please shout out my daughter born a half hour after Friday's show ended like a true team player. Maeve, I think it's Rise. Shouts to Maeve. What's up, Maeve? Uh, Islam got taken down by Moises. If it was Oliveira, that would have been disastrous. The fight is not as easy as Team Islam is projecting. I would agree. I would agree. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Granted, there are some different circumstances by which he got the takedown, but um, but yes, I would agree that there's a certain dismissiveness I've seen from uh, Team Makachev that seems a little unwise. Um. This person writes, my friend stationed at 29 Palms has told me there have been six Marine deaths in four months um, from ARIs and suicide. This is extremely tragic to hear. What's your experience? Dude, 29 Palms is in the middle of nowhere. It's in the Mojave Desert, and it fucking sucks. 
the one part about 29 Palms, now I haven't been in 20 years, but the one part about 29 Palms was that they had a really great gym. And, um, you know, it's not far from Palm Springs. It's not far from Las Vegas. And so when you get Libo on the weekends, it can be pretty fun to go to. But, uh, you know, you're in the middle of the, de- like in the middle of the desert and the town outside of it looks like it was the set of a horror movie. Like it's just like random fucking desert people living in these ramshackle like nothing facilities it's not awesome it's not awesome um so i don't know to what extent any of these factors play a role in any of these deaths but you know i mean listen there was a student who killed herself tragically at george washington university across town where i was today um you know it just jumped off a building like it you, you can be in the worst of circumstances or the best it's really all depending on your mental health i would probably say more that the marine corps less than like less than 29 palms being like a resort palace or the lack of one i would more say that the issue is that the marine corps probably doesn't do enough to focus on the mental health of either veterans or the marines uh what did you think of desantis's martha vineyard stunt i didn't think very much of it and lindsey graham's abortion bill i don't think much of it either it seems last month he thought that was the state's issue yeah i mean i'm not i'm not going to comment on the abortion bill one thing i would say about the desantis thing is that a he might be criminal but we'll have to see probably not but we'll have to see but more to the point, um, you know, they weren't illegal. They were asylum seekers, so they had legal status. And um, I do take seriously the idea that it's very easy for liberal coastal cities to be like, oh, we're sanctuaries for immigration when they're not under the same kind of uh, issue related to the, you know, the uh, huge amounts of immigrants coming over the border um, from uh, our borders with Mexico. I, I, I take that seriously. I think there's not an unfair point there, but using the dude, let me explain something to you. I was in Colombia. Colombia has a lot of Venezuelan people living on the street there, right? You can well imagine they share a border, they share a language, they share a culture. Venezuela and Colombia are very similar in a lot of ways. If you leave a restaurant in Colombia, not everywhere, but a lot of places, you will have a Venezuelan family come up to you and ask you for food, like the homeless. And I, you know, I always just give them my leftovers because that's all I have. Um, I tend to not carry a lot of cash in Colombia anywhere really, but you know, you get the idea. Why do I bring this up? I was outside with my wife the other day getting dinner across town and a homeless person came up to me and asked me for money and I didn't have any, I didn't, I just don't carry cash really. And I was, but I had a bunch of food I had just wrapped up. It was like a ton of food. There was like rice beans there's a couple pupusas in there like if you guys know what those are there's like salvadorian like bean and cheese pancakes um and like all kinds of other stuff and i gave her my food and she was like i don't want your food <laughs> she said it to me she's like i don't want your food buddy let me tell you very quickly they will take your food those venezuelan migrants in colombia they'll take your food not like take it but they will accept it gladly i had one come up to me him and his brother they were like covered in dirt and you can, when I say they're Venezuelan, you can hear their accent. That's why I say that. Um, and uh, I had my daughter, I, she wanted pasta. We went to a pizza place. They didn't have it. This was actually in, in Cartagena. So I got a pizza because the dollar conversion is crazy. Like you can live like a king there. And I got the pizza. They didn't, she didn't eat it because, you know, she's a finicky fucking eater. And I went outside and there was these two kids and they spotted me and they asked if they could have some. And I gave them the pizza. Bro, they took it. They took it. We're talking about, I bring this up to say, they, we're talking about people who are desperate desperate fucking people desperate and to use people like that for a political stunt is fucking sickening 
sickening. I actually am sympathetic to the idea that for my mayor, Mayor Bowser, to be like, we are a sanctuary city. And then Abbott starts busing immigrants, and all of a sudden you're calling in the National Guard, or you're trying to anyway, because all of a sudden it's like it's very easy to proclaim these values when you don't have to deal with the same challenges. That's not an unfair point. It's not an unfair point. But to use these people, and the, the, some of the one, the Abbott bus situation is i think a little bit different than the martha's vineyard one because it turns out that they uh, they might have been lied to about what they were expecting on the other end um but to use people like that for a political stunt is fucking gross gross deeply profoundly cruelly unethical super unethical these are people who are in the in the lowest of the low down on their luck and you're using them for a fucking stunt that is disgusting. With respect to sponsors, Chell said fighters can display them, just not between the walk to and from the octagon. Do you think that that argument is disingenuous? Listen, the idea is <laughs> in any world where they had more power, you wouldn't even have to make that argument. That's the point. In any world where they have a reasonable amount of say, this is not even a thing. Uh, how would Gordon Ryan do an MMA? I don't know. I don't know that he would do all that great. Um, his game is suited for the no-gi modern game. I tend to think he, obviously, he, you know, in terms of submission ability, he would turn everyone to a pretzel. But getting the fight there, um, you know, if he fought in UFC, how would he do under a more rigorous drug testing system? Like, there's a lot of questions. Like, I don't know. I don't know how that would go. But more, I think his game is just tailored to this. But I, I honestly hope he doesn't. He can make a shitload of money doing what he's doing and doesn't have to take any head trauma for it. Like, just go do that. And then these other ones here, I see. Okay, I think that's all of it. Let me just make sure. Let me just make sure. Yes. Okay, that is it. Thank you guys very much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. You are the best. This will be up on podcast prior to by the time you get up in the morning for folks who missed it. And uh, yeah, I am grateful that you watched. That's it for me today. Let me know if you have any questions for me. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. All my contact info is in the description box below. And that's it. Until next time, everybody. Oh, Bellator tomorrow. Shakur Stevenson, Conceição on Saturday. Watch those. MK tomorrow, live at 11 a.m. in the East. And until next time. Stay frosty. Mm -mm 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 -mm.